You're listening to Chris Orr, guest speaker at Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon titled, Love Your Enemies, recorded on April 7th, 2019. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Chris as he preaches. Hello, Harvest Community Church. How are we all doing? If you're a first-time guest, welcome. My name is Mike. You may be listening right where I happen to be in beautiful Catanning, Pennsylvania, or you could be in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Welcome. You could be in Freeport or in the Petroleum Valley or even in the county jail. We, we are in all those places this weekend. It is, um, I'm excited for a couple of reasons. One, it's Women's Retreat Weekend, um, and for the women who are able to be there, not all could be there, but for those who are, um, we, I got to spend a good bit of the afternoon with the retreat speaker, Miss Kate, Mrs. Katie Orr, and she's delightful, she's a passion for the Word of God, a good sense of humor, and she's, she likes to talk a lot, and that's my kind of people right there. <laughs> she's also written some books and whatnot, so I know the ladies are going to be blessed. However, it's good for another reason, uh, that her husband is a friend of mine, and I am excited that he's going to be able to preach the Word of God to us. When I started school at Southern Seminary, Chris or uh, st- we started at the same time, and what, they, what you do in these classes, it's not where you sit in rows and raise your hand and all that stuff. You sit in, in, a, in a U-shape with uh, several pastors, and it's the same people all week long. So you go to like one class for 40 hours for the week. So you hope it doesn't stink, right? Because that'd be a long time to sit in class. And I was honestly, back to school after 18 years or so. And um, uh, me and Chris, I really enjoyed being there with him. Um, not because he's smart and finished the, de- the degree before I did, even though we started at the same time. Um, I do. I think that's good. Um, but we, we had every seminar together. And one thing uh, we all got to participate a lot is I got to see that he is a man who loves the Word of God, uh, always speaks what I thought wisely, um, and, and I just, he, he was just a guy, you know you have someone in your life, you just know when they talk you're going to be able to trust what he says, you're glad he's in the room, you're glad he's one of your compatriots. And so I didn't know, think I'd ever get him up here to preach. Um, he's a southern boy and doesn't understand life above the Mason-Dixon. Uh, <laughs> We don't have leaves on the trees or anything yet, um, but he loves us anyway, and we love him too, or at least I do. Hopefully you will too. I said, Chris, hey man, since your wife's going to be here, could you come up from Florida? Uh, and he said, sure. I said, do you believe in free speech? He said, yes. I said, how about you give one? <laughs> <laughs> An old joke, but always good. But get this. He uh, is the pastor. He's been a pastor in Kentucky, but now he's in his true home, Florida. And if you are going to Disney World and you're there on a Sunday, you can go and hear him preach because he's within driving distance of Disney World at Grand Island Baptist Church. All right? So keep that in mind next time you're in Disney World. Chris, come on up. And, um, and, and to show you how much I trust him, we're not breaking from our series. I just said, hey. Give us First Samuel 24, come on up, yeah. and, and he'll do that. Uh, he'll break down the word just, just like we're used to. So you can give him some love here in Catanning or wherever you are. And let's hear from you. Thank you. 
Thank you, Harvest, and thank you, Pastor Mike. The single-engine plane that was carrying five American missionaries flew over the Ecuadorian jungle looking for a space big enough to land that plane. And they settled on a spot that was a big sandbar in the middle of a river. They landed that plane there, and then they very quickly set up camp right next to the plane. See, what you got to know about these five guys is as you rewind the clock six years, you meet a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a man who had a heart for the nations. He had a heart for lost people. He had a heart for people who had never before heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so while he was studying languages, he heard about a tribe in Ecuador called the Huaharani people who they were, they were so notorious for, their, uh, for, for how brutal they were and how, uh, how harshly they treated outsiders because they had a, the reputation that if anybody ever got close to them that was not part of them, they would kill them. And so Jim Elliott and his friends said, we have to go and reach these people for the gospel. Now, being men who wanted to prepare for every eventuality, they brought guns. If you're going to go to the jungle, I suggest you take a sidearm at least. They take their guns to the jungle to protect themselves from animal attacks. Well, it wasn't but a week before the Waharani people found Jim Elliott and his friends. And they attacked them. And though the missionaries had weapons, they chose not to draw them against the people who sought their very lives. How is it that we can understand the type of love that says, even though you seek to kill me, I am not going to harm you? How can we understand a love like that? And how can we love people like that? Well, I think that what we see in 1 Samuel 24 is a lesson on loving our enemies. If we're going to love our enemies, the first thing we have to do is we have to know the truth about our enemies. We have to know the truth about our enemies. As we look at 1 Samuel 24, what we see is that David's enemy, Saul, has the worst possible motives. Look here in verse 1, it says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, last week, when you looked at uh, 1 Samuel 23, you see that Saul was almost ready to catch David. He had him in his grasp. He was almost ready to catch him and kill him. And then they find out that his people, Saul's people, Israel, is being attacked by the Philistines. And so Saul has to leave from pursuing David to go save his people from attack. And as he saves his people, he says, I need to go back and I need to catch David and I need to kill him. What we need to understand about Saul is this is not a momentary lapse in judgment for him. This is not like a project that he gets on his, he gets on his mind and he can't just get off it uh, and it goes away in 24 hours. This is an all-consuming obsession in the life of Saul. He wants to kill David. David's enemy has the worst motives. We also see that David's enemy is a real threat. In verse 2 it says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the wild goat's rocks. Saul here musters an army of 3,000 men. 
And it wasn't like he was, he was getting the cast-offs. It wasn't like he was going up and saying, uh, give, me, give me all the worst fighters you got. No, he is assembling an elite fighting force because he wants to make sure that he kills David. He poses a real threat to David. Sometimes the people who we think are enemies in our lives, we look at them and we say, yeah, yes, they mean me harm. Yes, they wish that bad things would happen to me, but they really don't have any control over my life. In this case, Saul really does pose a threat to David. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the land. And if he wants to go after David and kill him, certainly he poses a real threat. But the third thing we see about David's enemy as we know the truth about him is that he is vulnerable. David's enemy is vulnerable. Verse three, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Though he is a king, he is but a man who has natural human processes. He needs a restroom. Now, I was told that if we talked about this too much, there would be snickers and laughter. So we're not going to harp on it too long. But I will say this, that every time I'm on a road trip with my kids, they wait until we pass like the most perfect rest area before they say, Daddy, I got to go to the bathroom. Every single, like we pass the on-ramp and then it's like it dawns on them, hey, we got to go to the bathroom. And I always tell them the same thing because after we pass that restroom, there's usually, uh, there's usually not another opportunity to get off the road for mile after mile after mile. And they don't understand geography. They don't understand the spacing of rest stops and, and, and gas stations. And so they're, they're always like, daddy, I got to go. I got to go. It's getting worse. And I always, I, eventually I kind of snap and I'm like, kids, I can't invent a bathroom. I don't have that ability. I don't have the, the ability to get the, source, the, the, the resources together and, and, and put a gas station right here for your needs right now. But I'm sure that's what Saul was thinking. Man, I, I need a bathroom and I need it in the worst way. And as he goes in to go to the restroom, he is vulnerable. In World War II, there was this, um, this code that the uh, German army developed in fact, in order to break that code, in order to decipher that code, you needed what was called the Enigma machine. They believed that this Enigma machine could encode any message in such a way that that code could not be broken. However, unbeknownst to the Germans, the Allies were able to crack the Enigma code. And many scholars believe that because the Allies knew what their enemy was doing, it shortened the war, and saved lives. There's great benefit in knowing your enemies. I want us to know the truth about our enemies. You see, your enemies may have evil intent. And just like Saul, they may pose a real threat to your life or to at least your lifestyle. But your enemies are not God. Your enemies don't have total power and I want you to understand this, because if you don't get this, you're not going to get a lot of the rest of where we go. And that is this, that those who we think are our enemies, according to Scripture, are not truly our enemies. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
You see, when we have a biblical understanding of who our enemy really is, we understand that the only true enemy we have is Satan. The only true enemy we have is the evil one. Everybody else that thinks there are enemies and other people would say, yeah, that's your enemy. We understand that they are not simply enemies. They are people who could be our brothers and sisters in Christ. And once we understand that people, every single one of them, including those who pick on us, including those who want to harm us and want to, want to see bad things happen to us, even those are not our enemies. We need to know the truth about our enemies. But secondly, we need to keep our priorities in order. We need to keep our priorities in order. There's three priorities that David has in verses four through six. I'm gonna show you them. In verse four, we see the priority of God's promise. It says, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David's uh, men here are trying to convince him that God's promise is about to come true in your life. Now, what promise is he talking about? Well, 1 Samuel 15 tells us that Saul has been rejected as king and that David has been anointed as king in his place, but has not yet been handed over the reins. He has not been handed over the keys to the kingdom. And so now David's men are saying, look, the promises of God are gonna come true in your life. All you have to do is take your sword and go over there and kill Saul because everything God has promised to you has come true so far in your life. And now Saul has been given to you. He's there waiting for you. All you have to do is go and harm him. All you have to do is go kill him. Now it's instructive for us that when David's men wanted to convince him of the truth of this, they didn't talk about military strategy. They didn't talk about vulnerability. They pointed to God's promise because they knew that David was a man who loved God so much and loved God's word so much that the only way you're gonna convince him to do anything is if you show him God's promise. David had a priority on God's promise. So why doesn't he kill Saul? Because of priority number two in verse five. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You see, in this moment, David realizes that if he kills Saul, that's not an act of self-defense. That's an act of murder. Maybe if they were on the battlefield, then yes, David could say, look, you're trying to kill me. I'm just trying to protect myself here. But he knows in this instance, while Saul is vulnerable, he poses no lethal threat to David. And he says, I can't kill him in this moment. That would be murder. So yes, I understand what God has promised me about myself and how I will one day be king, but I also know what God has said about murder. And here's the thing. David was unwilling to try to bring about God's promises by ignoring God's word. If we think that we can honor God while we ignore his word in order to bring about his promises, we are sorely mistaken. David had a priority on God's promise. David had a priority on God's values, but David also had a priority on God's selection. In verse six, he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. You see, David knew that God had selected Saul to be king. David knew that Saul has been left in authority, left in that position of power by God himself. 
And because Saul is still the king, David has to honor God's timing. Maybe you have a person at work who they would see themselves as your enemies. Maybe you think of them as your enemies. Maybe it's a spiteful person at work. Do you think it's by chance that you work with them? Do you think it's by chance that God has put them into your lives? Perhaps God has put them into your lives so that he can do a work through you in their lives, or perhaps there's some sort of character issue in you that God is going to use that person like sandpaper to refine in your life. You see, when we honor God's promises and we understand God's values, we understand that sometimes God selects things that we wouldn't select. David knows this and he honors God's selection. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I'm specifically talking to the dads here in the room. But dads, I don't know about you, but when I am on a road trip with my family, and I've already told you a little bit about our road tripping experience, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more. I highly value efficiency. I wanna get there in the minimum amount of time. I want to set the course record. I wanna set the lap record every time I go everywhere. And so when we lived in Kentucky and my parents lived in Florida, taking my kids to go see their grandparents became an all day affair. If we didn't time it out right, it would be 15 hours. 15 hours in the car with three kids. So one time I said, we're gonna time this up right. And we did. I mean, it was a thing of beauty. It was the day after New Year's. So we let our kids stay up way late on New Year's Eve to watch the ball drop and mute the TV because you can't even show that anymore. But we let the ball drop. And, uh, and so they stayed up way late. We get up first thing in the morning, we head out. My kids are in the back seat asleep for like six hours. We, we, we coast into the gas station in Macon, Georgia on fumes. And I woke everybody up. I said, get your shoes on, go to the bathroom. Let's get some food. I'm gonna get some gas. And then we're back out on the road and it worked. It was beautiful. And then we did the same thing. The kids were tired. They went back to sleep for another six, another five hours or so. We got all the way to Knoxville, Tennessee. Everybody wake up, go to the bathroom. Let's get some food, get some gas, get back in the car and it worked perfectly. We got into town and it was like 12 hours and 15 minutes and I was so proud of us because the priority on that road trip is we gotta maximize efficiency. But I wanna tell you about some men who have gotten their priorities out of order. There was a man in 2016 in Argentina and he was on a road trip with his, with his wife and his son and he stops off at a, at a gas station and as he stops off, his wife wakes up from her nap in the back seat. She goes to the restroom. He did not realize she got out of the car. He drives 66 miles away from her before he realizes She's not in the car. I'm going to do you one better. In 2013, there was a German newlywed. These, the, this bride and groom are on their honeymoon in France. And this guy, same, same scenario. He thought she was sleeping. They stop at a gas station. She goes in. He didn't realize that she went in. He drives two hours away from her before he realizes she's not in the car. That's a long two hours back. 
Now, I don't know if y'all's youth pastor is here right now, but youth pastors and people that work with youth, you know this. Anytime you go on a trip, priority number one is not efficiency. Priority number one is make sure that all the people who are with you in the car before the stop are with you in the car after you get back out on the road. Sometimes we get our priorities out of order. David here, he masterfully worked in God's priorities. He understood to prioritize the promises of God. And I hope you do too. I I hope you hold fast to the word of God. David prioritized the values of God. And we do that by obeying God's word. David prioritized the selection of God by choosing not to tear down what God had built. The third way that David is able to love his enemies in this text is that he blesses enemies with his speech. And I want us to make sure that we are blessing your enemies with your speech. In verses 7 through 11, we see David using his speech in two ways. First of all, in verse 7, it says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. The first way that David uses his speech to bless his enemies is he persuades his men, do not harm Saul. Do not attack Saul. You got to understand, David's men, these are, these are guys that are good at war. They're good at fighting. And they've got a guy in front of them who is vulnerable to attack, who has threatened their leader, who has has threatened him not once, but time after time after time. These guys are like, David, come on, at least let us go and like, like fist fight. Like we're not going to, we won't kill him, but how about we just like go beat him up? How, David, how about that? And David said, no, no, we're not going to lift a finger. We are not going to harm the Lord's anointed. Not only did David himself refused to harm Saul. He said, none of you guys are going to harm Saul. It wasn't like he was setting up this plausible deniability scenario where he says, I'm not going to harm Saul. Wink. But if anybody here does, when I turn my back, you know, maybe that would not be the most terrible thing in the world. No, David doesn't do this plausible deniability thing. He says, I'm not going to harm him and you aren't going to harm him either. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we like immediate and swift justice, right? We love immediate and swift justice. Somebody cuts you off on the way here or on the way home, and what do you you want? You want for there to be a policeman right behind them, right? And just pull them over and be like, gotcha, buddy. And you want to go like past them and, and give them this really, really, a smug grin as you go by, right? We want immediate and swift justice. David says, we're, we're not gonna do that. How ready are we to speak out in favor of those who have wronged us? David persuades others not to harm Saul. The second way David blesses his enemies with his speech is he publicly declares his values. Verse eight, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. And called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave and Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. 
For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. He tells everyone, including Saul, what his values are and his intent to always act in accordance with his values. Now, it's always a risk to tell people to go on the record about what you are going to do and what you're not going to do, right? How many of you guys are like me? Somebody invites you to something and it's months out. And you're like, I might show up to that. If you're like me, you say, I might show up to that because there might be something else that comes along better, right? You know, someone invites you to like help them move a sofa and, and, and then later on, you've already committed to that. And somebody's like, hey, I'm giving out free steak dinners. Um, I, I'm always holding out for the steak dinner. It's never happened before, but I always want to believe that maybe it could. And so sometimes we don't want to go on the record and say what we mean because we're afraid something else better might come along. And David had that risk as well. He was running that risk. He, he said, right now, I'm not going to harm you. But he was running the risk that perhaps a better plan could have entered his mind later. Another thing that David risked was he was risking by telling Saul what he was and wasn't going to do. He said, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to lift a finger against you. Now, he risked that Saul didn't just take a sword, walk over and said, well, if that's the case, you're dead. You see, when we publicly declare what we believe, we put ourselves in risk in multiple different ways. But David said, I'm going to publicly declare what I mean and what I value so that everybody knows. David was looking for ways to bless even his enemies with his speech. Now, I've only been to Western Pennsylvania one other time in my life. I was telling Pastor Mike about this. I was on a youth mission trip one time. We broke down in Dubois, Pennsylvania. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce the the name of the town. Okay, all right. I mean, I totally knew that's how you pronounce the name of that town. We broke down. Other than that, I've never been to Western Pennsylvania before. But in the South, we have this thing that we do. I don't know if you guys do it either. But if you're ever in the South and you hear this, know this is what's going on. What we will do is if we give voice to some sort of observation that we notice about somebody's shortcomings— we always tag it with the phrase, bless his heart. So here's, here's how it works. You would, if you're talking about somebody who just, maybe they're not great at, at work ethic, and you say, man, that guy just can't keep a job, bless his heart. Or, or maybe if you're talking about a, a, a young lady who's, who's not very lucky in love, you would say, she just can't seem to find a good man, bless her heart. Or maybe you're talking about a little kid and you say, you know what, that kid, that's a goofy looking kid. His daddy's goofy looking. His, his mama's goofy looking. That poor kid didn't have a chance. Bless his heart. <laughs> you see, I think that we do that because it seems nicer than saying, man, that guy's lazy. Man, that, that, that girl, she's just unlovable man, that kid is ugly. And so rather than saying it like that, real blunt, we, gotta, we have to sugarcoat it, just like our sweet tea. It's gotta, be, it's gotta be syrupy sweet. But what we do is not really blessing people with our speech. There's all sorts of ways to almost bless people with your speech. 
But David was committed to actually blessing even his enemies with his speech. I want to encourage you right now. When it comes to those who don't like you, when it comes to those who maybe even pick on you because of your beliefs and because of your faith, try these things out. First of all, refuse to gossip about them. Refuse to gossip about them. Here's another thing. Always believe the best about them. If there's two ways that you can interpret what it is that they have done or what it is that they have said or what their motives may be, always choose the best. Here's another one. Extend the benefit of the doubt. We as a culture have lost that art, the art of extending the benefit of the doubt. Another way you can do this is praise what is praiseworthy. Even those who you would consider your enemies and they would consider you their enemies, they have things that are praiseworthy about them. Praise what is praiseworthy. Use your speech to actually bless your enemies. The fourth thing that David does to love his enemies is he trusts God's character. He trusts God's character. And specifically, he trusts God with three tasks because he trusts God's character. First is, David trusted God to judge. In verse 12, he says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. In verse 15, again, he says, may the Lord therefore be judged and give sentence between me and you. Here, David is not asserting his own goodness. He's not asserting his own rightness or correctness. He's perfectly willing to let God be the judge because he, ju- he trusts God's character. 1 Samuel sixteen seven says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Because God was... Uh, a good judge of character because God judges not based on outward appearance, but because of, he looks at the heart and because God doesn't change his mind and he doesn't lie. David says, I know God's character and I trust God's character. I trust him to judge. He also trusted God to plead his cause. And verse 15, again, he says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Not only does David believe that God is a good judge, he also sees him as his best attorney. Now, if you and I were accused of a crime, we would go and try to hire the best attorney that we could afford to defend us because we realize I'm not a lawyer. Unless you went to law school, you're not a lawyer. And so you can always hire somebody who's better at defending you than you. David says, I'm not going to plead my own cause here. I'm going to go to the best defense attorney I can find, and that is God Almighty. David also trusted God to save. We already read it, but it's there at the end of verse 15. He says, and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David knew that he could keep on running from Saul. They could keep doing that Tom and Jerry cat and mouse game, but the only way that he would ever truly be saved is if God intervened. David trusted that God would change Saul's heart. I think we have stumbled on a massive theme here in the Bible, and that is this. True change requires heart change. True change requires heart change. If we want to see things really change, we have to trust that God changes our hearts or changes the hearts of those who we are dealing with. David knew that God is in the business of changing hearts, and praise God, he's still 
in the business of changing hearts. Now, I told you a little bit about my kids. We have uh, two boys and a girl. It goes boy, girl, boy. And so um, when my boys were little, even though they're about four or five years different in age, both of them loved it when I would throw them up in the air and catch them. I always caught them. Both of them love roller coasters. They have never seen a roller coaster at any theme park that they were afraid to go on. In fact, my youngest, he's like, he's the kind of kid that when it has the height restriction, he's doing this thing. He's like trying to, you know, fluff his hair up to to see if he can kind of cheat and get on the ride still. He's not afraid of it at all. Now, my daughter, she will not get on roller coasters if they're too spooky or too scary or if they just look scary. And we should have known because when she was little, she would not let me throw her up in the air. It doesn't matter if I threw her an inch or or, or 15 feet. For her, the inch was just as bad as the 15 feet. Now, I never threw her 15 feet, but you know what I'm saying. So we knew from an early age that she's not an adventure seeker. We knew from an early age that, that when I did that to her, when I tried to throw her up in the air for, for the purpose of having fun, she wasn't having any of it. Now, my boys, for them, it never crossed their mind that I might drop them. But for my daughter, that's the only thing that she could think of. Now, I'm grateful that my boys trusted my character, that I wasn't going to just throw them up and leave them. I wasn't just going to throw them up and walk away. I'm still working on my daughter. But when it comes to trusting the character, who else should we trust other than God himself? David trusted God's character. We should trust God's character. Here's the good news. God is a judge and he will judge, but he's also the one who pleads our cause and he alone can save. The fifth thing that David does in order to love his enemies and that we should do in order to love our enemies is trust God for the results. Trust God for the results. In verse 16, it says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. David trusted that God would change Saul's heart, and he did. Now Saul recognizes David's character. He recognizes every time he tries to do evil to David, David repays him evil for good. Friends, the world does not take notice when we who claim to follow Christ repay those who hate us with hatred. The world does not take notice when we return evil for evil. The world takes notice when we return evil for good. Saul also recognizes God's plan. In verse 18, he says, And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul finally stopped resisting God's plan. And anytime we resist God's plan and then we stop resisting God's plan, it brings this moment where we recognize the danger that we have been in. All of a sudden, Saul recognizes, whoa, I have been fighting against and struggling against and working against the God of the universe. Because David has the very anointing and favor 
of God. Here's another big theme in the Bible. If you have the power of God, if you have the anointing of God, if you have the favor of God in your life, there is no comparison between what you can do with God's favor and God's power and the spirit of God than what you can do in your own strength. There was a man named Pete Kostelnik who set the record for running across the United States from San Francisco to New York. He did it in 42 days, six hours, and 30 minutes. In fact, he smashed the previous record by four days. Now that guy, I think the math works out that he was averaging like 72 miles a day, every day for 42 days. But here's the thing. You know who could beat him going from San Francisco to New York? My grandmother. And my grandmother stops at every Cracker Barrel she passes. (laughs) Every single time. You see, when we try to do things in our own strength, like Saul did, we we come to a point where we recognize there is no way I can compete with someone who has the favor of God. Rather than work against God's plan, he could work with God's plan. The last thing Saul does, he pleads for mercy. In verse 21, he says, Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy the name of my father's house. You see, it was a common practice in that time that if there was a regime change, if there was a king who was about to succeed another king, but he was not in that king's line, it was common for the new king to go kill the old king's family. Because if you leave the princes, then they may one day raise up and kill you. Saul understood that this could happen to him and his family. He recognized that his sin, that his disobedience now has put his family in jeopardy and in danger. He says, David, please have mercy on my family. And of course, David agrees because that's what forgiven people do. Forgiven people forgive people. Think about it this way. If someone were to come to you, someone who has is, who is maybe even picked on you for your faith, has laughed at you because of the things that you believe, and all of a sudden they come to faith in Christ, would you say, wait, I know that God has forgiven you, but I'm not done with you? I hope not. I hope not. You see, we would celebrate with them. We would forgive them because we have been forgiven. I used to work for an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. It was founded by a man named Bill Bright. Campus Crusade for Christ was known for its evangelism training, its evangelism methods. I love what Dr. Bright said about the definition of success in evangelism. People would often ask him, Dr. Bright, what does it mean to be successful in evangelism? And he said this, the the definition of success in witnessing is simply taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. You see, trusting God for the results doesn't mean we kick back and do nothing. It means that we do what God has called us to do. We respond in faithfulness, but we understand that it is God alone who must bring the desired outcome. Trust God's character, but trust him for the results. We can't force people to behave like we want them to behave. Some of you who have grown kids know what I'm talking about. You wish your grown adult kids would start acting like grown adults, but they won't. And you can't force them to behave like you want. We can't control all the circumstances of our lives, but we can leave the results to God and trust him 
in that way. I want to tell you this evening that we have the opportunity to love our enemies. And by doing so, we point them to the greatest love that has ever been. You see, this idea of loving our enemies did not start with me. And it did not start with, with, with people that live in our time. It didn't even start with David. It started in the mind of God when God, before the foundation of the world, said, I know that people are going to sin against me. And because they're going to sin against me, that puts them at war with me. Their rebellion is going to cause them to be in a situation that they are going to require, that it's going to require death forever to pay for their sins. And so rather than leaving us to pay for our own sin, God said, I'm going to send my one and only son, Jesus Christ, who though people hated him, refused to hate in return. Though we rebelled against the very God of the universe, he did not leave us to our own devices, but he called us into relationship with him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And in just a few weeks, we're gonna celebrate Easter. We're gonna celebrate the resurrection. And I hope if you're here this evening and you don't yet believe in Christ, I hope that you think about this as we enter the Easter season. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. It's a, it's a fact that Jesus lived. It's a fact that Jesus died. And all Christians for the last 2,000 years have believed that Jesus raised from the dead. And it was a big deal in Jesus' time that he claimed that he was gonna raise from the dead and he did. It was a big deal in that time because there's a lot of people who wanted to shut down the message of Christianity, who wanted to shut down this insurgent faith. And all they had to do was go find a body and say, here's Jesus, you guys are all deluded. You guys are all crazy. But having that opportunity, they never were able to find Jesus' body because it was not in a grave. He raised from the dead. He appeared to over 500 people over the course of 40 days. He proved by his resurrection that he is who he says he is and he will save us like he claimed he could. And so as we enter this Easter season, as we think back to what Jesus has done for us, we recognize that what he did was that he loved us even when we were enemies with God. You see, it's easy and natural for us to hate those who hate us. And it would have been easy and natural for Jim Elliott's family to hate that Waharani tribe who killed the beloved father and husband and friend that he was. But Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, went back a few years later to that same tribe and she lived with them. And because she returned their hatred with love, many came to faith. Rather than seeking revenge on our enemies, we have the opportunity to bring about and introduce them to redemption. But if we're going to do that, we must know our enemies. We must keep our priorities in order. We must bless them at every turn using our speech. We got to trust God's character and you better believe we better leave the results to God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. 
For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.